Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and they went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And so he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called but few are chosen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for the marvelous truth Your Word continually communicates to us, for it is truth. We ask that You would make us attentive this morning, free us from distractions, and help us to see the beauty and grandeur of Your Son, Jesus. We pray that You would draw men unto Yourself even this morning by the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we all enjoy a good party, don't we? There's just something about the joy that comes when we are able to share joy with one another. It's exponentially greater than having a party just for one, enjoying the joy and happiness that one alone might feel. And when it comes to significant milestones, it seems all the more appropriate to throw a party to remember the occasion. Birthday parties, graduation celebrations, anniversaries. But in a person's lifetime, the celebration which probably involves the most planning, the most cost, and the most people is most likely wedding celebrations. Believing as I do about marriage, celebrating wed weddings as having profound significance I think is absolutely fitting. The only sad thing today is that many couples spend less time planning for their marriage than they do for their wedding. But that's a sermon for another day. Weddings are tremendous occasions. And we all have a kind of a special place in our hearts for love stories. We give thanks to God for the institution of marriage that He's designed from the very beginning. Not only for the further procreation of the human race, but as a marvelous illustration of the spiritual reality that exists between Christ and his bride, the church. It's interesting to note that the Bible starts with a marriage, that of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it ends with a marriage, the last being between the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church. 
Weddings are momentous occasions, ones that we wish to mark out as special and memorable, so hardly any expense is spared to make the day as perfect as possible, although we all know there is no perfect wedding this side of glory. The hope is that people will feel welcomed and will enter into the joy of this couple, enter into their joy, into their love, and enter into the love and joy of the parents of the bride and bridegroom. Guests are typically treated to elegant surroundings and lavish accommodations. With improvements in technology today, we have great ways of recording the event, right? Everything from pictures and recordings and videos today, in which we can look back and remember these things a little bit with a little bit more vivid detail. But even without such items, weddings attempt to plant memories by incorporating all of our senses in the celebration. Think about it. Think of all the sights and colors and textures that we see in weddings. The smells of fresh flowers, the tastes of wonderful food, the sounds of pleasing music, the touches of crisp tablecloths and bridal bouquets and cute wedding favors, right? All of our senses are just engaged in wedding celebrations. And they're not merely spectator events. They include the guests writing in guest books and talking with relatives and friends and laughing about old memories and dancing with loved ones and eating wedding cake. Don't forget that. And throwing rice, or today we can't do that anymore, so bird seed and blowing bubbles and releasing butterflies and shooting fireworks and all the rest, on and on it goes. Weddings are fun, they're joyous, they're extravagant affairs in most cases, but there's one thing that's sure to take any wedding and ramp it up to a whole new level, and that is adding the element of royalty. Once royalty comes into the picture, weddings go to an entirely different stratosphere. It's fascinating that even today in America, where we prize representative forms of democracy, that we still are curious about what's going on over in England with the royal family. Why is there so much intrigue and interest about something that for most of us we don't really care much about otherwise? Why is it that we still love prince and princess stories? Why is it that Disney continues to make a killing off of that concept? Why does this happen? Why, why is it that way? If there was ever a wedding full of pageantry and decadence, it's the wedding of the children of kings and queens. Why? Because the pockets are exceedingly deep and they employ the best of artisans so that each element of the wedding celebration is vibrant and wonderful. The entire event is not only familial in such cases, but it's political. And so they're trying to put on a show for not only those who are getting married, but for everyone else that's attending and looking in on the wedding. So much is on the line. You see, just a couple of days before Jesus' crucifixion, he tells a third parable in the string of three, recorded here in Matthew 21 and 22, to a group of Jewish religious leaders. We don't have to do a whole lot of explanation regarding the theme of the story. There's a certain timeless nature to this illustration. We all get weddings, and we all get royal weddings. We kind of get that, even today. And so there's not a whole lot of explanation I have to do that way. But as we listen to the details accompanying this celebration, we're horrified to discover how the invitees responded to their summons and how they then, how the king responded to them and what he does in response to their response. We're also introduced to a man who doesn't belong in the banquet hall at all and how he's removed. This wedding is certainly a wedding to be remembered. 
For not only does the wedding shock us with some unexpected twists, but in actuality it's outlining the ebb and flow of salvation history. One that we need to pay the closest of attentions to because it has consequences for all of us. You see, Jesus' ministry was just absolutely astounding. I know you all agree with that. His teaching awed those who heard him. He taught as one having authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. He wasn't constantly citing this authority and that authority and this interpreter and that interpreter. He spoke on his own authority, and the people recognized that. And also, unlike the religious leaders, he had real power, and he had real compassion for those in need. He was not only able but willing to heal the sick and cure the disabled and restore sight to the blind and free the demon-possessed and feed the hungry and... Oh yeah, forgive sinners. Jesus had power and compassion to do all of these things. And you'll note that he never demanded payment for his services. He wasn't there to get rich off of this show or act. He acted out of compassion and he gave and gave and then gave some more. Yet when we come right down to it in the end, we find just a handful of followers that are still following Jesus as the Messiah as the Jewish leadership and people reject him and deliver him over to be crucified. We're a mere couple of days from that event when Jesus tells this third parable. And he picks up on several themes that are particular to the two previous to it as well. In this parable, Jesus elegantly describes the situation that he's in and how he's going to be treated, and what the results of that are. In a sermon entitled, The Wedding to Remember, I'd like to discuss two things that you must have in, in, in order to be a part of this wedding. There's two things you must have in order to be a part of this wedding. Number one is a wedding invitation, and number two is proper wedding attire. Those two things, that's what you need in order to be a part of this most magnificent of all weddings, the wedding of all weddings, right? It would be these two things, the wedding invitation and proper wedding attire. First of all, let's consider how God has offered a wedding invitation. We see this in the first 10 verses of chapter 22. And we first come up against a curious case, a curious case of rebellious invitees, a curious case of rebellious invitees. Let's begin by considering the purpose of the celebration. Jesus tells this parable we're told, to explain something about the kingdom of heaven. He's likening God's dominion to this story, this parable. He's likening God's program of divine salvation, of gracious salvation extended to the chief of sinners, to that of a king who makes a wedding feast for his son. What is the purpose of the feast? Why are all these people invited? What is driving this king's passion for this marvelous, magnificent feast to be held? Well, it becomes very, very clear from the very outset. What is he after? Verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for who? For his son. For his son. You see, from the outset we encounter the fact that the ultimate purpose of God's work of redemption is to put His Son's glory on display. He wants for a great host to be brought together into His joy. God, as the King of Kings, wishes to throw a party for His Son, Jesus Christ, honoring Him in the most extravagant manner. And He desires that others share in the overflow of their love 
and joy and delight. You see, while God's love abounds in such a way that we're swept up into it, please remember that above all, God thinks of His own glory. That's what figures most prominently in God's mind. You see, God is worthy of all honor and glory and dominion and majesty. So God must give first place to that which is worth first place, and that is Himself. God zealously desires His own glory, and He's right to do so. He would be wrong to do anything else. But what's so magnificent about this is that God's glory is such that He delights to share it with others. And as He pours out His love upon His Son, we get wrapped up in this inter-Trinitarian love that exists between the persons of the Godhead. And I can think of no better place to be than to be wrapped up in the love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's like children. Children get wrapped up in the love of their parents for one another. Quite literally, children are the product of the love between a husband and a wife. They're wrapped up in the love that a husband has for his wife and his wife has for her husband. So the illustration here becomes so very helpful. Just as parents lavish out great wedding banquets for their children, which ends up, out of a desire to honor their children, ends up blessing others, right? I mean, why, is the, why are the parents paying for food for you? <laughs> Aren't they honoring their children? But somehow you get the blessings of their children's wedding. How does that work? It's because the parent so loves their child that that love overflows to others. They want others to join in the celebration and to be there. So how much more do you believe God the Father desires to bestow great honor and love upon His Son? And He's done it in such a way that He's brought a great host together for this celebration. This King makes a banquet to honor His Son. We note, though, something else about this King. Not only His purpose, but His patience. We see His patience The size of this banquet would be roughly proportional to the guest list, and invitations have already been delivered before we come into the story. How do we know that? Well, he's making preparations based upon some sort of number. It would be likely that they had sent out already a kind of save-the-date sort of invitation that had already gone out throughout the realm. People already knew that it was coming. And then right before the actual time, he would send out another group of servants and slaves, and they would tell everyone, now's the time to come. Among the animals that would need to be slaughtered and prepared and fruits and vegetables and beverages on hand and all of these accommodations required that he have an idea of those who were initially invited. So RSVPs must have already been gathered and there's a lot that goes into a huge banquet like this, right? Have any of you ever done any wedding planning? How much time is spent on such endeavors? A whole lot, right? There's total professions built around planning weddings because there's so many details to be considered. Now remember, this is also the king. So certainly he can expect his subjects to drop everything and come to the wedding feast when he says it's time. Why? If for no other reason out of respect and honor and reverence for him who is the king and his son who is being married. So once everything's ready, the master of the house sent his slaves out to inform everyone that the hour of the banquet had come. It was time. It's akin to ringing the dinner bell, right? Come and get it. Come and get it. It's time for the feasting to begin. But instead of finding people who are ready and excited and running to the feast, people are refusing the invitation. 
Now this king shows such kindness and patience and he here extends the benefit of the doubt to these individuals. He reasons to himself, or so we can kind of see between the verses here, that maybe something was lost in translation. Perhaps those first servants he sent out just didn't get the message across. So he sends another group of servants, and this time he tells them what to say. Tell them the following. Dinner is prepared. The oxen and fattened livestock have been slaughtered. They've been butchered. They're ready to be feasted upon, and everything else is ready. So come. The invitation had already gone out. They had already known about this was coming one day. This is the king talking to them. They refused the first summons. And now the second summons comes with more details. I like the way that Charles Spurgeon remarks. He says, surely if men's hearts were right, short sermons would be enough. A very brief invitation might suffice if the heart were right. But since hearts are wrong, God bids his servants to enlarge, to expand, And to expound. In other words, why the servants have to go through all of these other details? All they need to say is the wedding is on. Come. Period. Come. Period. But instead, he adds these reasons. The fattened livestock have been slaughtered. In other words, the best of the best is going to be present. He's appealing to all of these other reasons. Think about it. The invitation from God alone should be enough. But God is so patient to furnish men with explanations and reasons for as to why he's doing what he's doing and the benefits that are still to be had. He doesn't have to do any of that. He's king. He can just demand it. But instead, he reasons with us and he gives these explanations. And Spurgeon sees it as an appropriate moment, as do I, to explain the need for sermons that would expound and expand upon these things. Because our minds are so dense and our hearts are so cold that we need the Holy Spirit to awaken us and drive these truths into our hearts and minds and wills. This king is patient. But what do we see in the invitees? Well, we see that they're preoccupied. We see the preoccupation of these ones who have been invited. After the second come and get it invitation comes, they are, we're told, unconcerned about the banquet. So they go on to their own fields and to their own trades. They're indifferent. They're preoccupied. They disrespect the king and his son by showing preference for what? Their everyday occupations. Their stuff. This is a momentous occasion. This only comes once, and they're sitting there going, "Uh, you know what, I actually have some work to do out in the field. I don't think I'm going to show up. These stubborn, obstinate, this refusal against the king, though they're being bidden, they're showing themselves to be unwilling, and they show a rude indifference and unconcerned, inattentive, apathetic self-consumption. Their absurd excuses don't even cover up real motives. This is a deliberate snubbing. I mean, you think at least they come up with a good excuse. They don't even have that. Luke 14, Jesus records a parable with a lot of similar details. We, we went through that parable some time ago. But there are some significant differences between that and this, and that's why we're treating them separately. However, what's interesting in that parable is that there's a lot more time given to the excuses that men had. Uh, one man says, I bought a field and I'm obligated to go check it out. Another one says, I bought five yoke of oxen and I have to go improve them. Another one says, I just got married. I'm not able to come. All those 
excuses are so hollow, don't they? Aren't they? I mean, why would you buy a field and not check it out first? And who would buy a yoke of oxen without knowing if they could work? And what does getting married stop you from going to a wedding feast? Um, none of these excuses actually work. You see, their own everyday interests are considered more important than the king's. Can I say that again? Their own everyday interests are considered more important than the king's interests. How tragic that the beauty and magnificence of this wedding is being shunned in favor of everyday work. Of everyday work. They're more concerned with everyday work than they are attending this lavish banquet. Can you imagine being invited to a special banquet with the President of the United States by one of his closest social security, not social security, social service men? Yeah. Can you imagine after being given that invitation, you reply by saying, uh, nah, I don't think so. I'm just too busy with work, or I'm in the middle of a golf game right now, or, you know, I'm doing dishes. It's hard to step away from those, or I'm in the middle of laundry. Not only would such a response be an absurd waste of an opportunity, but it would be a tremendous insult, wouldn't it? You're saying that your laundry, which you could do tomorrow, is more important than attending this lavish feast you've been invited by the king of the realm and you won't come is it not strange that when the king gave such a great supper and he offered it without money without price that all these people would refuse it's curious but then we're told the rest are even worse the rest of those who were invited respond even less favorably they respond to the king's gracious invitation by mistreating and get this killing the messengers Come to this lavish banquet and feast. Come here, I'm going to kill you. How does that even fit? This is outright political revolt. These men are hostile. They're persecutors. The act of murdering the king's servants is an act of treason. They're sure to bring judgment to themselves. They themselves are subject to the king. They're asking for judgment. Returning to our illustration of being invited by the president to a special banquet by one of the secret servicemen, can you imagine what would have happened if you lashed out at the guy and killed him on the spot? How do you think the president would respond to that? Well, we're told how the king responds. Punishment. He punishes the rebels. When he finds out about this rejection of his banquet and the killing of his servants, he becomes angry. He becomes furious. We can understand this righteous indignation that would arise at this moment. The king's generosity has not only been discarded by those invited and spurned by these people, but they've killed the king's messengers. The ones bringing good news are killed by these rebels. The king is astonished, he's, dis he's disappointed, he's enraged, and he crushes the rebellion. We're told that the king sent armies. They went and found those murderers and put them to death and then burned their city. How do we understand all of this? Well, it makes us think of the preparations that the ultimate king of kings is engaged in. He's making the most extravagant wedding that could be imagined. God the Father has spared no expense in the gospel, he has provided a lavish banquet for the soul. He offers forgiveness and peace and hope and love and righteousness and relationship and crowns and inheritance and joy and glory. And this banquet 
came with much forewarning. Invitations had already been sounded regarding this through the centuries in the Old Testament times. Everything in the Old Testament pointed toward Jesus. The prophets all spoke of a coming one. Jesus said in John 5, You search the Scriptures, speaking to the religious leaders, because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me. He says in Luke 24 to those disciples on the road to Emmaus, He says, you guys are slow of heart and slow to understand and believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into His glory? And then we're told, beginning with Moses and the prophets, He explained to them all the things concerning Himself in the Scriptures. God the Father had lavished invitations on the people of Israel throughout all of the Old Testament leading up to the coming of Christ. And then as if to ring the dinner bell, along onto the scene comes John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he points to Jesus. He says, this is one whom I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. I baptize you in water. He's going to baptize you in fire in the Holy Spirit. I must decrease. He must increase. All of this pointing from John the Baptist saying, he's here. The king's son is here. It's time to celebrate. It's time to repent. It's time to come to him. But his invitations are refused. And both John and Jesus would be rejected and killed. What's the ultimate ground of these people's refusal? As every man's rejection of Christ is, it was that they ultimately had no real desire and saw nothing attractive about the feast that God prepared. They had no real reverence for the host. They didn't care about the king. They wanted to live life their own way and cared nothing about his rule and sovereignty. They considered their present state better than that which was being offered. J.C. Ryle says, It is not a vowed dislike for the gospel which is much to be feared. It is that procrastinating, excuse-making spirit which is always ready with the reason why Christ cannot be served today. Infidelity and immorality, no doubt, slay their thousands, but decent Plausible, smooth-spoken excuses slay their tens of thousands. No excuse can justify a man in refusing God's invitation and not coming to Christ. It is not only open disobedience to God's law, but also excessive attention to things lawful and permissible that can ruin a man's soul. You see, a great many reject the gospel. They listen to it repeatedly, but they always find excuses to refuse it. Many feel no need for it. They see no joy in it. Many hate God and hate His Son. They reject Him. And many oppose the messengers of the Gospel. And they subject them to scorn and persecution and even death. There are many who have laid down their life in proclaiming this invitation. But the rebels, the murderers, will not ultimately get away with it. As in Noah's day, there will come a day when God says, Enough, even if His judgment won't come with a worldwide flood. You see, if you reject God the Son, if you reject this summons, to this invitation to the wedding feast, you will not taste of the great banquet of God. If you reject Christ's invitation to come unto Him, then you'll forfeit participation in the future coming of God's kingdom. Spurgeon said it so well. If men turn their backs on Moses with his stony tables, I do not marvel. But to despise the loaded tables of grace heaped up with oxen and fatlings, this is strange. 
To resist the justice of God is a crime, but to repel the generosity of heaven, what is this? We have to invent a term of infamy with which to brand this base ingratitude. To resist God in majesty or terror is insanity, but to spurn him in the majesty of his mercy is something more than madness. For people to reject God as sovereign and king is ridiculous because he is, and you can't stop him from being so. But to reject God in His grace and mercy, His gracious, generous invitations to spurn that is, as Spurgeon says, something more than madness. The king brings swift judgment to these individuals. But that's not all that he does. He has a further response to this inexcusable rejection. He throws open the doors to his house and he starts inviting others. This is where we see the intriguing case of strangers invited in. You see, the king has a plan to fill his banquet hall, and it will be filled one way or the other. In his righteous wrath, this king does not forget to show mercy as well. And he tells his slaves to go out quickly into the streets traveling out of the city. Some translations have here the main highways of the city. It can also be translated the roads to the extents of the city. In other words, those roads going out of the city. Go to those places. Go to the outlying places and invite people in. Why? Because the master wants his house filled. Does he need these people? No, he doesn't need these people. Why does, what, what's the imperative? Why does he do this? Well, because he wants to honor his son. And he's not going to allow his banquet to not be enjoyed by others who will fellowship with him and his son. Nothing ultimately thwarts God from accomplishing his plan. So make no mistake about this, this master will fill his house and all of it rebounds back to the riches of this king's generosity. So he makes proclamation to strangers. You know, when it comes to parties, being invited to them makes us feel kind of special, doesn't it? Feeling invited to things makes us feel included and loved, makes us feel valued and appreciated, makes us feel wanted. Some invitations come to us on the basis of certain accomplishments, right? Like you might be invited into the National Honor Society, but that's only because of a certain accomplishment. Or you might be invited to someone's birthday party because you spent lots of time with them and you're friends with them, or you happen to be related to them. These might be reasons why you might be invited to something. But there's one invitation which no one can ever earn, and there's one place which we're all completely undeserving of going to. Yet God has made the widest invitation available. He bids people, both good and bad, to come. What does he mean by good and bad? What does this mean? I think that this is a phrase trying to describe the fact that regardless of your previous history, whatever your moral or religious state was up to the time of invitation, the king extends welcome to you. Whether you are looked down upon, whether you come from the wrong parts of town, or no matter what your state, unloved and unlovely, Tax collectors, prostitutes, nobodies, the forgotten, the excluded, all are invited in. We use the theological term, the general call, the outward call of the gospel, that people from all places in all backgrounds and languages and tongues and histories are invited in. You see, this invitation is not based on some merit in you. It's not based on some accomplishment or some pedigree or some economic status or some intellectual achievement. The king invites the reputable and the outcast. He bids the rich 
and the poor. He asks the morally upright, or so they're seen within society, and the downright criminal. The good and the bad as they're viewed by us. All are invited in. Those on the far outskirts of town, the overlooked, the downtrodden, the out and out, they're welcome to this feast. Both the good and the evil are ultimately not righteous enough to merit welcome into this feast. No matter how good you think you are, you're not good enough. So therefore, both the good and the bad both have something in common. They've fallen short of God's glory and are in need of a Savior. They're in need of a salvation based not on their merits, but the merits of another. You might feel undeserving of such an invitation. You're right to feel it. You don't deserve it. Neither do I. Nonetheless, the Lord bids you come. You may ask, what do I need to bring with me? I mean, going to a party, don't you ask that? Like, should we bring something with us to come to the party? And the emphatic answer is no, you can bring nothing. Certainly you have to forsake sin, but also you must forsake your personal righteousness because even your best deeds are filthy rags in God's sight. You must lay down everything and you must come stripped naked before Him. The hymn says it right. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. You see, God extends an invitation wide enough to extend to the whole world. The Spirit is ready to invite, the Son is ready to receive, the Father is ready to pardon. Angels are ready to rejoice and churches are ready to welcome you and to equip you and rejoice with you. God saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Alone. That's it. That's the only way. And if it were any other way, none of us would be saved. Salvation is the work of God. A miraculous act whereby a sinner is pronounced pardoned and forgiven. This happens by a glorious exchange. The sin of the sinner is placed on Christ who dies on the cross taking the punishment you deserve. And His righteousness is then granted to you. This broadening of the summons to others to come to the banquet makes a very interesting parallel with the spread of the Gospel for this very thing would happen. Because after this rejection, this wide-scale rejection by the Jews, we see the Gospel go forth and starting in Jerusalem and then through Judea and then Samaria and then into the outer parts of the world. The Gospel spreads. How glorious that strangers have been invited in. Ephesians 2 speaks of it. Strangers from the commonwealth of Israel. Gentiles. Those who were at that time separate from Christ. Strangers of the covenants. Having no hope and without God in the world. These now who were formerly far off are brought near by the blood of Christ. Those who were strangers and aliens are now made fellow citizens and saints. Part of God's household. This is what Jesus is referring to. The invitation is going to go out from the city and others are going to be joined together in this wonderful celebration. Here's the good news. The invitation is here. You need an invitation, but guess what? It's been given. And no matter where you're, what your past, no matter what your background, no matter what you've done, the invitation is here. Jesus says, come unto me. You who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
But there's a second thing you must have, not just an invitation. You must have proper wedding attire. And we see this at the end of this parable in verses 11 through 14. It begins with a refusal, a refusal of a wedding garment. See, whether you're one of the few that was invited early or one that was just invited moments before the wedding, one thing is equally required. Everyone must be clothed in a wedding garment. There is no admittance without proper attire. The king comes into the wedding banquet for this very reason, to scan the people. And as he looks over the crowd, someone stands out. It's kind of like a Where's Waldo sort of thing, right? Someone stands out. This individual is dressed differently. The king comes up to him and says, how did you get in here? What right do you have to be here in this feast? How did you get in here without the proper wedding garment? Where is the wedding robe you're supposed to be wearing? And this man is speechless. He says nothing. There's no excuses. There's no reasons given. He's just without words. He knows he's guilty. It's a reasonable question to ask. Where would this man have gotten a wedding garment? There's a very ancient interpretation put forward by Augustine, and there's lots of debate between different theologians as to whether or not they agree with him. I happen to agree with Augustine in this regard for a couple of reasons, but he said that the wedding garments were provided, that they were provided as the guests got there. This is a very peculiar scenario. Remember, the king has just invited people who are on the outskirts of town. In other words, they might not have been privy to the earlier invitations to this wedding banquet. And now they've been invited to a wedding. If you just think about this practically, I mean, it wasn't like as if perhaps that morning they were going out and about like, oh yeah, I need to bring, make sure I bring my Sunday best with me in case there's a wedding that I'm invited to. You know, They wouldn't have had that kind of foresight. They wouldn't have been thinking about that at all. Also, would such a gracious invitation come with the requirement that a man locate and purchase a wedding garment? That doesn't seem to fit the generosity of the text. Oh yeah, you forgot to go and purchase at the local mart a, a wedding garment, and once you put that on, then you can come in. It seems like we start to get into a different category of things now. The generosity of the host doesn't seem quite so generous anymore. Because maybe someone could honestly say, I didn't have the money to buy the wedding garment to come in. One third thing is that This man offers no excuse. The king seems quite peeved that this man is not dressed appropriately. And when he asks the man about it, he offers no excuses. He asks, how did you get in here without the wedding garment? His immediate feeling of guilt makes me feel that he has shirked the offered garment at the door and presumed to enter with his own clothing upon his back. Or he entered maybe not by the door, but jumped over the... The wall is a thief or robber climbing in or breaking a fence and coming in. This man pictures the man who presumptuously attempts to enter the king's banquet on his own terms. He thinks that his own covering is acceptable, but in the end he's found wanting. He defiantly refuses the provided wedding garment, determined to be himself and to cling to his self-made clothing. Makes me think of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, when they are realize their sin, what do they immediately go and do? They go and hide and cover themselves. They make coverings for themselves. They attempt to shift blame and they try to cover themselves, but God brings them out into the open, strips away all of these excuses and these blame shiftings, 
And then at the end of the account, we hear that He provides them with garments. He provides them with garments. God clothes and covers their shame. I think it's a picture of what happens later. It's a picture pointing forward to what happened with Christ. Because you see, all of us need our sin and shame covered. But none of us can cover it ourselves. Because all of our attempts at doing so are just stained and ripped and tattered. We have a bunch of rags and it doesn't work. What we need is to be clothed with a garment that is spotless and pure. Something that we can't fashion. Something we can't provide for ourselves. Any attempt to wear our own righteousness is futile. Even our best deeds are filthy rags in God's perfect holiness. You see, it's impossible to come into the king's banquet on your own terms. You come on his terms or you don't come at all. You come on his terms or you don't come at all. What we're all in need of is perfect righteousness to cover us. And that's only possible in Christ. That question, how do you get in here? There's, and why are you wearing what you're wearing? There's only three kinds of answers you could answer with. Number one, you could say, what do you mean? I've got my own clothes. What's wrong with them? I've tried to be good. I've done many positive things in my life. Sure, I have a couple of blemishes, but aren't you understanding of that? I mean, can't you overlook that? Can't you see all the good I've done? This is how a lot of people live their life, thinking that's how the conversation is going to go with the Lord in the end. Another response is like this man, speechless. Knowing you're just guilty. Knowing that what you're wearing is rags. Knowing you don't really deserve to be there and have nothing to claim nor any reason or excuse to give. you just swallowed in guilt and shame. That's another response. Here's the third response. Announcing that you're there not due to any merit of your own. You don't come with fancy garments that you've made for yourself, but instead you come claiming the merit of someone else, trusting solely in Jesus, in His righteousness, that His righteousness has covered you and, and clothed you, taking away your sin and shame. Why does Jesus speak to the situation? Why even set up this scenario? Well, He did say that both the good and bad were invited into the feast, which we already remarked probably referred to those who were looked up uh, uh, to and those looked down upon in the general course of life. So here's the point. Everyone comes just as they are. Everyone comes just as they are. That's a good thing to understand because otherwise there's no hope for any of us again, right? So we all come just as we are. But note this. We are not left in that condition. No matter what your past condition, you're invited. However, you must put on the proper adornment. Does this make salvation conditional? Well, there is purely one condition to salvation. Just one. What is that? That you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That you be clothed with His righteousness. There is no entrance to heaven apart from that. And this is a very clear, important distinction that we need to drive home. Because there are people out there that believe in universalism. Believe that everyone goes to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe. I had the opportunity to be at the 4th of July parade here in the woodlands. And... Uh, the Unitarian Universalist Church was part of that parade and they went by. And as they did, the announcer said, oh, look at this, the Unitarian Universalist Church. And he said, they accept whatever you are and however you are and we should consider all things as equally valid, something of that nature. And I just about gagged. And then right then I looked up and there's a, a lady holding a sign saying, I believe in Katniss. 
I'm on the side of Katniss. Now, those of you who have read The Hunger Games know this is a reference to that book. I am on the side of Katniss. What does that mean? What does that mean? But she was proud about it. She was proud about being on Katniss's side. There are a lot of people that go through this life with that kind of belief system. Maybe not that particular, peculiar one, but some variety of that. It doesn't really matter what we believe. In the end, we're all going to go to a better place. Embracing the larger hope, and it's a fiction. God requires a wedding garment. Should you refuse it, you have no place at the, at the banquet. But here's the good news. The only garment that is, requ- is required is also provided. The garment that's required is provided. It's provided to us in Jesus. A couple other things to just note quickly. Note that this king considers the crowd individually. It won't work to say that your friends and family and co-workers and neighbors and ancestors and your family are appropriately dressed. You can say, well, look at all of my friends. They're all, they're all dressed right. I just happen to be the oddball. No, it doesn't work. You are personally responsible before God. This is one of the big things that pushes the Reformation forward and the idea and impetus to translate the Bible into languages so that the common man could read it. Because you're personally accountable before God. What happens to this man? He's removed. We see his removal from the wedding celebration. There's a previous parable in Matthew 13 which The kingdom of heaven is likened to a dragnet that comes through the sea. It gathers up good and bad fish. And it's not until afterward that the bad are thrown away. It says after that, so it will be in the end of the age. The angel will come forth, take the wicked from among the righteous, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's it saying here? There are going to be false professors. People who falsely claim to be with Christ who are not. They'll be sorted out in the end. You see... It's not our job to root them all out because you can't. You don't know the condition of men's hearts. There are some people that will show themselves to be false teachers and those we can um, point out and avoid. But there are a great many, like this man, who doesn't reject the invitation, who doesn't kill the messengers, actually kind of pretends to be a follower of Jesus but in the end is shown to be wearing his own clothing, not the righteousness of Christ. J.C. Ryle says, It shall avail the hypocrite nothing that he has been a loud talker about religion and had the reputation of being an eminent Christian among men. His triumphing shall be for a moment. He shall be stripped of all of his borrowed plumage and stand naked and shivering before the bar of God, speechless, self-condemned, hopeless and helpless, He shall be cast into outer darkness with shame and reap according to as he has sown. What's the principle here that Jesus is putting forward? We see it in verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. You see, the outward call goes far and wide, yet a great many reject it. Some turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to the gospel, Others are enraged and lash out against the messengers and various forms of persecution. Still others claim to follow Jesus, but in reality they're trusting their own righteousness and therefore will ultimately be shown to be wanting. Yet there are a few, a remnant by God's gracious choice, that walk in relationship with Jesus, clinging to His cross, 
draped about with His righteousness, pardoned, forgiven, and given eternal life. These will not see the second death, for there no longer remains any condemnation for them. Christ has paid their debt and clothed them in white wedding garments. You see, salvation in the final analysis is a divine accomplishment, not a human one. God saves sinners. God's call of the Gospel is to all without exception. But not all come. Those who do are chosen by God's sovereign grace. You see, God is sovereign and man is responsible. And may we never lose sight of both of those truths. They're both true. We must, both, we must uphold both. And one day, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered together around the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what a blessing that will be. After remarking on the great faith of the Gentile centurion, Jesus said this in Matthew 8.11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That prophecy is coming true. Isaiah 25 speaks about this lavish banquet. And get this, that all peoples will be present at upon this mountain a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow and refined aged wine. On this mountain He will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. We read in Revelation 19.9 Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That will certainly be a wedding to remember throughout all eternity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for the marvelous invitation that You have extended to us in Your Son, Jesus. Thank You that You've not only invited us, but You've provided the garment necessary for us to attend. You've provided all of these things. And as we think further about this, what's even more glorious is that somehow in Your glory, You have wrapped us up in this wedding celebration. We're not only invited, but we're participants because we are married as the church to Christ, our Bridegroom. Thank You for Your marvelous grace and mercy extended to us. We pray even in these moments that if there are any here who are still dead in sins and have rejected You perhaps throughout their life, that You would open their eyes, grant them new hearts, cause them to love You from the heart. We ask that You would be honored and glorified through the salvation of sinners and a great host of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation being gathered around Your marvelous marriage supper. We look forward to the consummation of these things. We pray in Your Son's name. Amen.